As a, a culture, um, and it's not, it's not a new thing under the sun, we've always had a, a level of fascination with kind of the magical and mystical things that are beyond what we would think nature would allow, right? Like there's a reason that Harry Potter movies and books are immensely popular in the world we live in, right? And I'm not, you know, some people believe that Harry Potter is the greatest movie or book ever written slash produced. Some people think that it's a demonic force for evil. And I'm not here to polarize us about Harry Potter. But just to give us an idea, like there, we have this, this weird obsession, right? Like when things like that come around, we want to know about them. We, we think about the, the amount of people, even in the Christian faith, that are consumed by, you know, the promise of faith healers. And, you know, the idea we talked, I remember a few months ago I preached a sermon, I talked about the miracle spring water that you can, you know, that you can get online by was it Peter Popoff or one of those, you know, crazy guys like Ernest Angley or others, right? We have this obsession. In 2004, um, to, to me, when I think of this kind of thing, it, it reached its, its height in some ways. In 2004, there was a piece of grilled cheese that sold on eBay that had the image of Mary supposedly burned into it, right? A woman found, found this thing and, and sold it, uh, and her name was Diana Dweiser, and she sold it to Golden Palace Casino on eBay. And guess what they paid for it? Anybody remember or no? $28,000 for a half a piece. Like it was diagonal cut right, of, of grilled cheese. Because it looked like the, the image of the Virgin Mary had been burned into the toast of the grilled cheese. This woman claimed at the time that she sold it that it was 10 years old, but yet somehow magically had never sprouted any mold whatsoever. I don't buy it. But if we ever struggle with finances in this church, we know how we can get about these things. We just start making some Jesus toast and we sell that stuff online, right? Anybody here good with eBay? Right? We're going to come December when, when giving is in a, in a low lull or something. We'll come to you guys and we'll start making Jesus grilled cheeses, right? But we, we have this fascination and it's, it's interesting because it's not a new thing, right? I'm excited in, in, in the fall this year, we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and you know, in it, we see, we see the wrestling of nothing new under the sun. Like we try to find joy in all the different things. And, and you just see there's this nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. It just keeps coming through. And in the passage that we're in today, in John's Gospel in chapter 5, we see this kind of weird obsession with the magical and the mystical even coming through in biblical times, because there is nothing new under the sun. So this morning, I want to invite us into this passage uh, that takes place at the Pool of Bethesda. And, and as you read it, there's, this, there's a very surface-level reading. This is one of those passages that we like to read and move on, because there's seemingly nothing complicated in it. Right? Like, just whatever happens is very easily spotted. You can read it like a story that someone would tell you at a bar, and you're like, yeah, that happened, great. And then move on. But there's, there's some nuance in here and there's some weird stuff that takes place that we need to wrestle with. And so I want to invite us into this passage this morning and then invite us to see, right, as John calls it a sign, what is the sign? What is Jesus telling us about himself and his kingdom 
through the lens of John 5. And so we'll be in verses 1 through 17. Let's read together. There we go. After this, there was a feast for the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda. It has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. But afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said, See you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Okay, there's one immediate, really big issue with this passage. And, and, and I want to, can anyone tell me what it is? Does anyone see something f- funky when they look at this passage? Oh, it's a trick one. There is no verse four. That's not a typo, right? Three, paralyzed, five. There's no verse 4 in this passage. Almost every translation today omits verse 4. There is a few that have it. If you are a King James Version person, right, a lot of times we think of the King James Version as a very old English, perhaps people might think slightly more antiquated. If you love the King James, today is your day because the King James has it in there, right? And the ESV, or sorry, the NIV, while it leaves it out, it actually puts it in a footnote. So if you look at the NIV, after verse 3, there will be a little asterisk. And when you go down, you know, you can read verse 4 in a footnote. And here's what verse 4 says if, for those that have it in. This is the NIV translation. So it would read this. In these days lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Verse 4. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. And then it goes, one man was there who had been an invalid. That makes a lot of sense. That's why when Jesus asks, do you want to be well? The guy's response is, well, I I, I do want to. Like, every time the pool is stirred, like, I'm, I'm an invalid. Like, I'm never the first in the pool. I'm too slow. No one will help me get there. Right? And I think what's happening is the guy is suggesting... You know, if you want to help me, the next time the pool is stirred, throw me in before anyone else touches it. Why is this verse left out? It's because when you look at the way that we derived at our scriptures, 
the way that the collections came together, the way that the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts were written early on, it was from a whole bunch of different, very close to the original manuscripts and copies and snippets of scriptures that were found in caves over the years and collected. And one of the things they do is they'll have maybe five or six different versions of something and they compare them and they found that there was really only one or two places where this verse was added. And based off of dating and looking at who most likely wrote that particular scroll, people concluded that verse 4 was not in the original text, but was added by a scribe probably at some point later on. And so most translations choose to omit it from the canon of Scripture. And, and some, like the NIV, will say, you know, it's worth thinking about this, so let's put it in as a footnote. But we have to understand, verse 4, most biblical scholars agree that it's not actually part of the, the scriptures that we have in our, in our total, complete form today. And so, this is why it's helpful every once in a while when you read through scripture, like, make sure the verse numbers add up. Because it's a tricky one, right? It's not a typo. But we have to understand that. But we do get some context as to what was happening. Regardless, we have this pool, and there's a whole bunch of sick people around it. And, and scripture doesn't do justice to the magnitude of this pool. It mentions these five colonnades. Right? Those were built because of the amount of people at this pool. Picture this scene. There's a small pool that, that has the healing powers when the water is stirred, supposedly. Right? That's kind of the, the, the mystic stuff that's being spread around. And so you have like all of the sick, the lame, the diseased those who are paralyzed and invalids, whatever, all the descriptive, descriptive words, hanging around this pool, and we're talking like hundreds of people, right? This isn't just like five or six guys who can't walk or have illness or disease or leprosy or whatever. This is where, like, the sickest of the sick come together. And I'm not trying to judge those who are ill, obviously, but, like, in terms of the scene, this is just a dirty cesspool of gross. Right? No one wants to go to the pool of Bethesda who's well. Right? If your favorite restaurant is in, near the pool of Bethesda, you're not eating there anymore because it's not worth the smell and, and ugh, you might catch something. Like, it's a gross scene. These colonnades were actually built so that those who were there would have some sense of shade from the sun while they were waiting, presumably for a very long time. Right? And so the man that we encounter is one of those people, and he has been there for 38 years. Right? And then Jesus enters the scene. And the first really noticeable thing about the story is that Jesus is there. Right? It just kind of mentions that sometimes in Scripture, but it's, it's bizarre based on how gross of a place we think it is that Jesus is there. The fact that he's even present among these people says an unbelievable amount about who our Savior is and the kind of Savior that he is. Right? He is spending time amongst the sickest and the lame, the people that no one else wants to spend time with, the people that everyone else has discounted and thrown away just to wallow there in hopes that someday they might experience some miraculous healing. He's there. He's in their midst. And so they're waiting for this pool to be stirred. And we have theories as to why. The, the, the best scholarly theory is that, and it's true, you know, they have, they've excavated the pool of Bethesda. You can, you can see it. And there is a spring, a natural spring, very close. And so the, the idea, the, the theory is that the spring eventually, once in a while, would stir the waters. And so people saw the stirring of the waters, and they thought it was a miracle. You know, and someone jumped in once and proclaimed that they were healed, and it spread like brush fire, right? Just like, you know, you see the people on TV, and they go, ha! 
and you know, people, all of a sudden they can see again. And if you dig into those things, you find that there's a lot of hoax going on there. Um, but obviously those ideas spread. And so there's all these people there. And Jesus finds this old man. The second thing that's noteworthy is Jesus saw him and, and knew that he had been there for a very long time. Right? So not only is the Savior willing to be in the midst of this cesspool of gross, but he actually knows. Right? There's, there's a godliness. There's an, there's an like, full knowledge of people. He just is walking around and he sees this guy and he knows that he's been there for, for as long as he's been there. Because Jesus is God and he knows everything. Right? He knows everything about us. If you ever wonder, how could Jesus love me if he only knew about me what people don't know about? Well, Jesus knows everything about you and offers grace and love and compassion to you regardless. He knows the things that you haven't dared to share with another human being, maybe even your spouse. He still walks with us and loves us and cares for us. He knew this man's story. And so he comes up to him and he asks a very innocent question. Do you want to be healed? Right? It's a simple question. And we'll get to the significance of it in a little bit later. But the man's response is very much matter of fact. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know that he's encountering you know, this guy who's been performing miracles. And so his response is very matter of fact. He's like, well, I, I'm just too lame to get into the pool. Every time the water stirs, someone else jumps in before I can. Um, you know, maybe you can help me get in. You know, sometimes it takes weeks to stir. We just kind of hang out and wait. Imagine the destitute nature of being an invalid for 38 years. I'm 35 years old, so I'm not even there yet. Right? And he's just been sitting at this pool for decades, watching others come and go and go in and out. He's saying, hey, if you just, that, that's where his hope is. His hope is in this pool of Bethesda. He's talking to the, the savior of the world, the God of the universe, and his response to do you want to be healed is essentially, well, maybe you could help me get into the pool. And so Jesus' response is really great in this sense because we, we all, all the time in movies, you know, when there's magic or mystic things happening or miraculous things going down, they're always elaborate. And, you know, you know, some, you know, why, why do magicians do that, right? If you ever go to a magic show, it's like... You know, like, Jesus isn't showy or flashy. He has no need to be. And so he doesn't pronounce some kind of, like, snake talk over him. He doesn't use some language that we can't understand. He doesn't do some flashy hands, like, you are. No, he just says, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And what are we told? The guy gets up and takes his mat and walks, presumably with a leaping of joy, which... In this particular scripture, we don't have an account of how he walked. But I'm going to imagine it was not like, oh, that's cool. Right? There was probably some gusto behind the guy's response. And so he's excited and he's running around and then he encounters the Pharisees. And we'll get to the second half of this, the Pharisee half, a little bit later uh, in the Jews. But for now, I want to zero in on the one question that, that while it sounds innocent, it's just such a big, 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 big deal. And it's this. It's the key verse of 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And that's an innocent question. For me, if I was in the guy's shoes, a little bit of an offensive question, if I'm honest. Do I want to be healed? I always imagined that the response that he gives has some undertones of sarcasm to it. No, Jesus. 
I've just been sitting by this cesspool of diseased, smelly people for four decades because it's fun and I think they're, they're comical. Do I want to be healed? What kind of question is that? Anyone you know who is struggling with major illness and disease, if you walk to them right now, it's like, do you want to get better? Well, of course. Who doesn't? <clears throat> do you know anybody who's like, no, I really like my, my illness and disease that's holding me back from living life. I just think I'd hold on to it for a little longer. Oh, there's a cure? Nah, I'm good. No, right? You would leap and jump at the chance of healing. Of course, that's the stupidest question one could ever ask. But we have to remember it's Jesus asking. And so nothing that Jesus asks is ever stupid. We have a, we have a joke. There, there's no stupid questions. Well, there are stupid questions. But not when they come from our Savior, the God of the universe. Why does he ask it? And here's the truth. Maybe the guy has some hesitations about being healed. There's a whole host of reasons why we might, right? Maybe the question we need to ask ourselves is, is there, is there potentially a reason why the man might not want to be healed? And I could think of some. If I had been an invalid for 38 years, I mean, that's my life. That's really all I know, right? I don't even know what it means to be someone who can walk and function like a normal human. Maybe I've gotten really comfortable in that. Maybe I'm looking at all the people who can you know, function very well. He's, he's invalid and he's, he's not able to function. And he looks at those who are and goes, man, they all have to like go to work during the day and do all this stuff. Seems like their life in some ways is harder than mine. I just sit here. Yeah, it's smelly and there's like diseased people everywhere, but I've kind of gone nose blind to it. Right now, all I do is beg. People give me enough money to eat. I've obviously survived for this long. There's a certain level of comfort. Perhaps the guy is kind of happy in the skin he's in. Maybe not happy, but content in the skin he's in and doesn't want the change. Change is scary. Some of us have been walking in the same ways for so long, right, that we just don't want to change. Maybe he doesn't want to think about the difference in what his life would be like if he wants to make changes. Here's the truth. Every one of us has a resistance to change for ways that could make us feel better. Right? Every one of us has been to a doctor's appointment, if you're over the age of like 25, right? where you have had suggestions made to you about lifestyle changes to live healthier and longer, and you know that there are things that you're doing that are preventing you from living healthier and longer, but you choose them anyway because barbecue is so good. <laughs> right? I, have, I have a history of of high cholesterol in my family. And so my doctor, like, I don't have problems with high cholesterol, but my doctor's like, you know, it's like, if this is the great number, you're like, right, just the great. I would like you just to be like, just a tad, right? A little more exercise, a little more eating. My response to him is the same as I just told you. But barbecue is so good. And running stinks so much, right? Like, who likes going to the gym? I know there's some that do. I go there. I don't like to go there. I go there because someday my daughter is going to get married and I'd like to be able to be there and walk her down the aisle, right, and pay for it, right? <laughs> but that's the truth. Every one of us has resistance to change. You know in your life there are habits right now that are hindering your health that you should and could be changing, and you don't. Why? Because change is hard. Kale tastes gross, <laughs> right? We don't. I'm sorry, if you like it, I'm going to judge you. It's just disgusting. <laughs> right? We don't want to make these changes. We're resistant to it. And so it's silly, and these are little ways, but there is this human tendency to stay in what's familiar versus that which could be better. 
And so Jesus is asking a really valid question here. He goes, listen, like, for you to be healed means to change everything about your life. Are, are, are you ready for that? Like, do you actually want to be better? Or do you want to stay where you're at? And that, my friends, is a very, very valid question. Jesus had something far deeper in mind than just, do you want the miracle? Because here's the reality. Jesus is offering this man more than just a healing from being an invalid. He's offering him a new life, a new path forward. And it's the same path and way forward that he offers to us. He's saying, I have come to heal this broken world. It has been messed up by sin and the choices made that you have made and the choices that have been made for you and the choices that continue to be made. Sin has stayed in this place and I can heal it because I am here to show you a better way. That is what it means to walk with and to follow Christ in ushering in the kingdom of God. It is a restoration of all things. And the question is, I can heal you. I've come to show you this way forward. Do you actually want to take that way? It's the same question he asks us today. And for some of us, the answer to that question is probably more difficult than we're willing to admit. Actually, for most of us, the answer to that question is more difficult. Because we want, we really want the fluffy Jesus. Right? We want the hell insurance really badly. We love the idea of hell insurance. We love that someday when we die, we don't burn for eternity, but we get to be in paradise and we get to have our house with all the rooms that are prepared for us. Right? But what Jesus is actually offering when he offers you new life is a different way forward than the ways and the paths that we've been going. It's a change. He's offering a new life. That's why he says whenever you are under his grace, when you come into the grace of Christ and you accept him as your Lord and Savior, you are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And what he's asking this guy and what he's asking you is, do you actually want it? Because most of us don't really want all of that change. We want to have the good bits, the fluffy bits, but we don't want to move and align our lives in a way that God says is what will bring us life. That's the part that we don't want to do, right? A lot of us, if we're honest with ourselves, the question of do you really want to be healed is kind of, maybe a little bit, right? And that is hard. That is a hard reality to think about. It's appropriate that this passage ends with the way that the Jews question the guy, right? Because that's what happens next. Think about this. This guy is healed. He's 38-year invalid. He's, he's walking. He's jumping around. He's got his mat on his back, and he goes, and then he encounters the Jewish people. And what did the Jewish people say? You're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. Just imagine for a second. There's a guy in your town Let's say there was a person in our church who'd been a quadriplegic his whole life. He's 38 years old, and he comes walking in here holding a cot. And our response is, hey, uh, there's no cots allowed in the sanctuary. Really? I'm sorry, that is crazy. Right? The, the response of the Jews in this passage is insultingly terrible. It is so bad, but it's so matter-of-fact the way that they put it. Right? This guy walks in healed, and I love the innocence of the man in the midst of this. Right? They're like, you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. And I'm like, well, I, I was invalid, and then a guy came and said, 
pick up and walk, and I picked up and walked, and I was kind of preoccupied with the fact that like my whole body worked again, so I wasn't really thinking about Sabbath rules. Really sorry, but like, by the way, have you noticed that, you know, you've known me for 38 years, and like, <laughs> and the Jews are like, are just, just baffled, like, well, who was this man? He's like, like, can we maybe acknowledge the elephant in the room? I am, right? I love, I love his innocence, but they just cannot get over it. And so finally they figure out who the guy is. Right, Jesus shows himself to him, and he offers the same response to the man later in the temple that he gives to the woman that he caught in adultery, right? Great, I'm glad you're healed. Now go and sin no more. Right? AKA, I have just given you a new life. Go live it. Go do with it what I'm calling you to do with it. You are no longer under this old way of sin and death and pain and suffering. There is a new way, and I want you to start to live into that way. Now go and do that. Right? And he, of course, goes and tattles on Jesus and tells the Jews, yeah, it's Jesus. And it's when they start persecuting him. They start to go after him. Because he healed on the Sabbath. Good Lord. And it's easy to get frustrated at them, but they're a representation, right? John, remember, John writes brilliantly. Nothing's by accident. He's showing that the, the, the norm of the religious leaders and people of this time was to be offered this beautiful newness, but they were far more happy in the little rules and cocoons of, of self-righteousness that they had built around themselves. Right? The Sabbath rules were some of the most annoying Pharisee rules ever. Right? There are laws in Scripture that God actually gives, and then the Pharisees built these like mini laws around it. Like They had way more stuff that was required than God ever actually said was required. There were rules about everything. You were not allowed to carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath. Like If you had a cold, and you, you had to like put it on your belt to walk down the steps and then pull it back out to use it because you couldn't carry it down the steps. What? Right? They built all these fences and they loved their little rules because they loved to be the ones that kept them and no one else was able to keep them the way they were, right? Imagine if our church leadership just started making up all these rules about how you had to live if you wanted to be a part of Stowe Prez and if you didn't follow the 6,248 rules to the letter, every, every week when you came, they would point out to you all the ways in which you're... How long do you think you're going to be here? Not very long. Our, our membership would go to like four people real quick. We have nine elders, so half of them would leave. Right. Right. The people that made the rules would be tired of the rules. Right. Now, I'm not saying rules are bad. The Lord has many rules for us of how we are supposed to live, and they are born not out of some kind of pharisaical self-righteousness, but they're born out of what is best for us because what the Lord is saying, what Jesus is saying is, the way that I have for you is in every way better. I know you can't see it. I know you think your way is a better path. Everything about the way the world works suggests that you're right. But guess what? Having faith in me means trusting that I am right and you are not. And if you walk in my ways and if you press into them and if you respond, yes, I actually want to be healed and everything that comes with it, it is the best way forward for you. That's what he's saying. And the Jews don't get it. They are so stuck on the Sabbath. It's amazing in Scripture how often Jesus wrestles with the Pharisees about this thing. He's like, listen, like, is it really? Like, I made a guy walk again. Are you kidding me? Right? Like, you can't, you can't get over it. 
I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You do realize that, like, I'm the one that gave you the rule in the first place. Every once in a while, like, I made the rule. I can break it. Right? Our rule in the house is that Graham doesn't get candy before dinner. If I want candy before dinner, guess what? I'm going to eat candy. Why? Because I made the rule. <laughs> I can break the rule. And if you don't like it, you live in my house. Tough cookies, kid. By the way, no cookies, kid. <laughs> right? I'm not saying that Jesus is inconsistent. But the, the, the rules that he's made are for a purpose. And when they, they, when they don't serve that purpose, when they hinder the purpose... The Lord suspends them at various times. And so, yeah, there are Sabbath rules that are created, but the Lord himself created them for our benefit, for a very specific purpose. And in this case, the need to heal trumped that purpose. It's the reason that food laws eventually go away under the new covenant, right? Because it's not that there's something inherently sinful about bacon. It's that there were cultures in that time that were consuming pork and he wanted his people to look different and set apart. And so he said, you don't eat pig. Right? And it became unnecessary later. Right? The Lord offers us healing. He says to us, do you want to be healed? Do you want a life that is better than anything you could have asked for or imagined? And you'd be surprised how often we struggle internally to say yes to that. But that's the invitation to each of us this morning. Do you want to be healed? And I can't answer it for you. Only you can do that. But know that if you accept and you say yes, man, it means change. We don't become healed and then live the same way, right? He, wouldn't, he wasn't walking and living life again and then just went back and slept by the pool of Bethesda every night. Right? It doesn't tell us in Scripture what this invalid did after 38 years once he was healed, but I imagine he didn't go back there very often. <coughs> imagine that his life was renewed and restored and different, that he pressed into the reality, the new birth and the new real that Christ had given him as a gift of grace. That same gift is offered to us, and the question is, will you take it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the great gift of your grace and your mercy. We thank you that in the midst of a world of pain and suffering and agony, that you come and you say, I have newness for you. And if you trust in me, if you walk with me, I'm not saying it won't be hard. I'm not saying that there won't still be pain, but I can guarantee you that it's a better way. And we thank you for that gift. And Lord, we ask that you forgive us for the times that we refuse to answer that call for the times that we say, no, our way is better. Thanks, but no thanks. I pray that your spirit would move in the midst of each of our hearts and minds that we might respond with a resounding, yes, I want to be healed, and I will do whatever you call me to in order to move past this life and on to what you have for me in your glorious future. Give us that strength. Give us that discernment. Allow your spirit to move in our hearts and minds to stir up that response we might all resoundingly answer yes. Be with us this week as we go out, as we scatter as your people and encounter those who maybe have never even been asked the question, Lord. Stir us and move us to ask and answer that question according to your truth and your power in the name of Christ. 
It's in Jesus' name that we all pray. And God's people all together said,